0: Hi, and welcome to the Above and Beyond podcast. I'm Joe Ambrose, and I'm the Senior School Improvement Leader for Greenshaw Learning Trust. Today we're having a conversation with Karen Westbizer. Karen is the COO at TeacherTap and ParentPing. Before that, she was the Head of Impact at the National Foundation for Educational Research, and some of the topics we covered today include small team leadership, managing up or upward management, the importance of empathy and leadership, and the importance of networks in improving the performance of specialists in your team. We started by asking Karen to tell us about her leadership journey to this point.
1: Yeah, so I started leading um, in, in small ways quite, quite early on. my career so I'm an educational researcher by background um, and I I learned my trade so to speak at the National Foundation for Educational Research Um, and there I started uh, I was leading the international project Um, but that sounds much more grand than it actually was because no one else in the organisation was particularly interested in doing international work so I I was the only person in this team (laughs) that I was leading and it was a lot of upward management about trying to facilitate other people to do things that I needed them to do in order to kind of um, create this international uh, role and and to to create international work for us. So there was a lot of small team leadership in sort of like the early part of my career Um, and that, that was quite useful, that kind of management, managing up kind of uh, learning. Um, In my next position, I was um, managing up to a board um, and trying to, whilst facilitating what they needed, but also getting out of them what I thought was needed for for the company. Um, Fast forwarding a a bit, I more recently have moved into um, operational positions. Um, So I was director of operations and I'm currently um, Chief Operating Officer, um, which is is quite a an interesting position. It, it's sort of one below the CEO. So you're not you're not making the strategy decisions at the end of the day, but you're facilitating a lot of those decisions and facilitating a lot of the um, different processes and outputs and products that need to work to make that that uh overall leadership work for for the organization so that's kind of where i'm at at the moment i am not at the, the the top of the tree so to speak um but it's it's i don't think leadership is just about being at the top it it's all-encompassing, and I think everyone has a role to play in leadership. Yeah, I, I an organization. absolutely
0: agree. I think um, I, I'd quite like to ask you about if you've if you've got some some tips for when people are managing upwards. Um, it's sort of not. It seems like quite a um, um, a sneaky turn of phrase, I suppose. But ultimately, it's influencing those around you, isn't it? Including those that are hierarchically higher than you are. Like, are there any techniques or, or any sort of lessons that you learn from doing that?
1: Um. I think there's something around having a clarity of idea before you start. So don't don't kind of test your ideas out on yeah. these people, come with clear ideas and succinct ideas if you can as well, because the people that you're managing up um, will be very busy people. It's, it's one of the techniques we use when we're trying to influence mm. policy makers as well. Um, you know, to try and get your idea down into a sheet of paper or three bullets, whatever it is, so that it's very succinct and yeah. very clear. Um, I think it's also quite useful to give the list of kind of pros and cons or the costs and the risks, um, so that they can see that you've kind of done this part of the thinking yeah. for them. Um, but also to give options, um, and that can result in them thinking, feeling that they've, they've had the idea, they've made yeah. the decision. Um, and that gets the buy-in. And like I said, as, as you put it, that, that works for whoever you're trying to persuade of something. Having, having them thinking they have some ownership in the decision or the, the action that's being taken makes whatever's going to happen next yeah so it seems like
0: there is there is it's about clarity of idea do the thinking before you get to them it's outlining uh, Mm. the costs and risks and negatives of of uh, as well as the positives um, of that idea, and giving them an option of of the, some of the different um, approaches to solving this problem, um, I think that's a night. Nice, th- those three are quite are quite useful, aren't they? I think often as well, when I've um, um, been been, I suppose managing up is the right phrase, right? Um, you think of a problem or if there's a problem, and then you think of their solution. So opening with the problem, we, you know, um, this problem down the production chain is, is we've been held up this far down the production chain, and I think we should do this thing. Like delivering that double whammy is often quite useful, isn't it, where you say, Here, here's a problem, here's what I think we should do. Nearly always leaders will be like, great, go and do it. Then. <laughs> yeah, fantastic, yeah, exactly. go and do <laughs> it. So I wonder, because um, you've worked in in a, in a few different industries, I wonder if there are any behaviours that really excellent leaders um, in those industries have displayed, are there any patterns that you see um, uh, with the behavior of, um, of leaders in those industries?
1: Yeah, my favorite leaders are those that, that, that never, ever forget that they're managing and leading people, human beings. Um, so to give an example from the education sector that I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will, will know, know of, if not know him, um so David Carter is absolutely one of my favourite leaders um, and it's for a relatively simple reason that he he remembers to ask how my kids are, he, he remembers about the last time we met, he remembers my name, you know, maybe he has a whole notebook full of these things, I don't know what his trade secrets are but he treats me as a person that he's got time for um, and if you kind of take the converse of that the people that I find hardest to deal with as leaders are people who jump straight to the business end or who don't have a a concept of that wider context that you personally are working within Um, and you get that kind of feeling that they're always kind of like looking over your shoulder to try and find the next person they need to speak to, the next thing they need to do you're sort of part of yeah, a to-do list for them, um, and so David
0: never. So, do you think we, we th- this is a this is a theme that's come up a few times? Do you think people can learn to do that?
1: Um. Yes, I think they can certainly remember to do it. I mean, it it might feel hmm. a little bit forced sometimes, um, but I think it's certainly a habit that you can start to yeah develop. Um. And, yeah, so, yeah, I I think you can learn it so i don't think there's a course yeah. on it or anything like that yeah um, but yeah just be, yes. be a yes. bit more so,
0: human so asking you know being interested in the person uh, themselves yeah you're right and I, i've actually i agree with you i think you can learn it and i've encountered leaders who there's some people who are just i think through their um through the way that they've you know they've grown up are just actually quite good at it i think there are some people who are genuinely just interested in it as well some people who like chatting away and they're a little slower to get to the business i would include myself in that um but um but um, yeah. th- I, I I do have sympathy for people who maybe it doesn't come naturally to, or they haven't learned how to, do it and are trying to do. it And I think you're right. Things like I, I actually don't mind if, if David Carter did have a black book because that shows that he's he's wants to he wants to make people feel like they feel um, um, they feel part of the team. Um, although my experience of him is he's, he's probably yeah. falls into one of those previous categories of someone who just quite like quite quite likes people and quite likes to make them feel um, feel part of the team. Um. Yeah. I wonder if you uh, I could ask you some reflections on um, working in a range of different places. So how important is it um, for leaders to have a range of different experiences? Um, how important is it for them to see different areas, different sectors?
1: <clears throat> I think it, it's very useful. One of the things that happens as you become more senior um, in, in your professional life is that you start having to lead and manage um, roles which you have never done yourself um, and, and could never do. So um, in my operations role, you know, I'm uh, responsible for managing things around HR um, and bookkeeping and things like that. And I have no qualifications in either of those. Um, so it's important to be empathetic to those different professions that you're managing because you're not going to be managing simply the thing that you used to do. Um, so having that range of experience is, is good. It's something that's quite tricky to learn, I think. Um, particularly when there's underperformance yeah. in those areas, it's very difficult. It's difficult to kind of identify to identify where the, the problem is. But I think my advice around it would be to make sure you're surrounding yourself with, with the best qualified, the, the best uh, performing people from those sectors. Um, because you, you will have to rely on their skill. Um, in order to, to kind of get the, the wider organisation, yeah, well, what want have it you? To
0: be. If you, I don't know if you could, if it's appropriate, if you could give an example of what you have done for that. So I think senior leaders will face, in schools will face mm-hmm. this when line managing different curriculum areas, or maybe they've come from a curriculum background, and they're yeah. line a pastoral background. How, how do you, even mm-hmm. if you've got really good people and they're underperforming, or in worst case scenario there's dishonesty there, what strategy have you used to sort of wh- when you faced that in the past?
1: I've got um, those colleagues where I might be line managing them. I might be line managing a department or a specialist in an area that I don't know. Um, And what I will often do is bring them in a mentor from within Mm -hmm. their industry, not necessarily from within my organisation, so that they can have those professional level conversations about how do you do this particular task? Or how do you do this task in this circumstance? Um, which, you know, they, they could ask me, but I, <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. know the answer. Um, so to give them that level of professional support. Um, and if you can find the right person to support in that way, you can also try to set it up in a way where that person can provide you as the leader with feedback as well. I mean, You have to be careful because if it's kind of a a coaching conversation, it's quite confidential, but you can make sure that it's clear about what's going to happen next. And so you can ask, does this person need more resource? Will they need, should they go on a course? Should they do some more training? Um, So you can get that feedback from someone who is perhaps at the top of their game in that area. You couldn't (laughs) afford them. You've already got someone doing that job. Um, but you're bringing in that, that support for them in terms of their particular skill set, whilst you continue to manage them in terms of their broader performance and role within the
0: organisation. Uh, again, I'm just going to dive a bit more into the, into the weeds of this, which is how do you manage hmm. to secure people like that? So do you work on a, on a, you know, you're an expert in something, Karen, and this company X... Needs your help, and you also need help in bookkeeping or HR or whatever. Is it is that sort of mm-hmm. reciprocal arrangement? Do you give them a the day rate? What's that? How do how do you or do you just rely on your networks?
1: Um, yeah, it certainly starts with networks. Um, so reaching out to people that I know that have either employed people like that or companies that I see being particularly successful in that way. So it would be someone that I know. You, you can't kind of cold call this thing. Um, but, you know, start with someone you know and ask them, oh, your marketing department seems really good. Do you have someone who could mentor someone in my organisation? And sometimes um, the opportunity to be a mentor or to be a coach fits with their mm. professional journey. So they will do it pro bono, um, which is lovely. It's it's easier to ask for that pro bono support when you're working yeah. in a charity or a, a school. Um, but sometimes you do have to pay the day rate, and you have to just kind of make that then as a kind of value for money decision about whether that form of uh, investment, because it becomes quite a transactional kind of CPD investment, then, is the best one to, to deal with the performance issue or the support yeah, issue it seems well, i
0: think it, it, it seems like money well spent that even if you do have to pay a day rate but certainly in schools um and in my limited work in charities um the uh, my experience is that people are quite keen to help you know if you ask people can you help me yes. with this thing they're like yeah i'll help you out
1: yeah. yeah people love to help they really do and especially if you're casting them in the mouth yes. of the experts um You know, it's very flattering to be asked to do these things.
0: Absolutely. Um, I wonder. I'm just going to change gear. I wonder if I can ask you about persuading people of ideas. Mm. So, there's a couple of times in your career where you've had to persuade people that your idea was a good idea, and we talked a little bit about within organisations, so like managing up. But but what strategies do you use to persuade people that your idea is a good idea?
1: Um, I like to talk. (laughs) I like to have very open and kind of non-judgmental discussions, I like to have those discussions informing my opinions even if I go into a a discussion with a particular uh, concept that I think is the right one I'm very open to having my mind changed on it or changing someone else's mind So, so to consult kind of as widely as possible, um, I think it is really useful, and that's where it can kind of come back and to so the, the idea of working with different people and uh, across like different parts of the organisation, talking to as many people as possible. And the more times you discuss a topic, the more you're kind of honing your thoughts and 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 kind of getting nearer to to getting it it, it just right. Um, and probably alongside all of that is, is stepping yeah. away a little bit and um, sleeping on an idea you know taking, going for a dog walk and, uh, and kind of just letting it fester yeah. at the back of your mind rather than you know necessarily kind of going all guns blazing. Yeah, it's an unusual
0: so, cognitive process that isn't it because I agree, go for a run or go for a walk you've got a problem, you think I don't know how to solve this, you go out and by the time you get back it's sort of through revelation resolved isn't it it's 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 incredible so um consulting as widely as possible (laughs) and also giving yourself time to um think about the problem that you're facing and how you might you you, how you might come up with a solution that can persuade other people you also mentioned in there um an open-minded sort of approach and that's we talk about it a lot but it's quite difficult to do isn't it like if you've got an idea and you think this is a solution, it's quite difficult to be open-minded. I don't know if that's something you find hard or if it's something that you don't find too difficult.
1: Um, generally, my feeling is, and I, I don't know if this is particularly good leadership, but it, it works for me and it allows me to sleep at night. That as long as I have discussed it, an issue, and given my viewpoint, wherever we end up in the end, as long as I've had the opportunity to kind of say what I think. I'm relatively happy yeah. about where we get to, um, so I, I don't know if that's that's a bit strange and I suppose the other thing that I'd be remiss not to mention as an education researcher um, is an yeah. evidence base, um, so to, to pull out what I can from data, you mentioned earlier about making sure you're clear on what the problem is that you're trying to solve. Um, So looking at the evidence of of what's going on in your particular situation and and why you need whatever intervention it is that you're talking about. Um, And then any evidence that you might be able to gather, um, either kind of quantitative evidence about what level of success the thing has had before, or qualitative evidence, which is a bit more kind of, you know, it's just due diligence, it's going to speak to someone else who's the same thing. and then that can be used quite persuasively yes. as well to to say whether it's worked somewhere do else. Do you ever or
0: not. do you ever find this is a phenomenon I found um, uh, recently around evidence and around studies and things like that that if you are trying to launch a um, a strategy in school or you're trying to make a change in school, often people will ask for. Um, well, ask for the evidence of the way that you change it. I think that's a positive thing. But there are some situations which are too hyper-local or context-specific to have any sort of evidence there. Do you ever encounter people using that argument as, as a way to block things or a way to stop things from happening within organisations?
1: Uh, yes. And I, I agree that there's been a, a massive groundswell of uh, teachers asking for the evidence that informs something. So I worked in education research up until 2012. And then I took a couple of years out and went um, into the media sector. Um, And I was only out for two years, I think it was. Um, But I was quite amazed when I came back at how that ground had shifted um, from everyone being quite sceptical, no one quite knowing what it was, or why teachers should be involved in it, to you know things like research ed and the Chartered college they all kind of uh, occurred around around that time and um, so there, there was a definite shift and i think there's even there's starting to become a little bit of a shift back again in the in the way kind of that you're suggesting um where people are, are saying well that's 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 not a good enough study that doesn't actually prove your point um and one of the areas where i faced this most often, and it, it is a valid uh, issue, um, is around special educational needs. Um, so I've just, like this week, sent off uh, to the publisher the Research Ed Guide to Special Educational Needs. Um, and one of the, the premises of that book is there's not actually a lot hmm. of research around what works for children with special educational needs. Um, you know, kind of by definition, most cases are especially yeah. that individual. Um, so it's quite hard. And a lot of studies have failed to include um, children or schools that work with special educational needs um, yeah. in their evidence base. So it is challenging. But you can, I think, then step back and broaden out your concepts. So just because a particular intervention hasn't been trialled with a particular group. You can step back and look at the wider um, environment around that intervention. There, there probably will be an evidence base yeah. that sits there. Um, and I think beyond that, it's it becomes a question of creating some of the evidence yourself and contributing to that. Um, and so you need to kind of set quite Clear parameters of what—not just what you're going to do, but when you're going to stop and yeah. check if it's working. Don't just yes. keep yeah. going. That that review point, I think, becomes really, really important in untested. And and, and the
0: other the other sort of and it is a crisis. The other crisis around this evidence base is the replication crisis, right? That we're sort of facing at the moment. And yeah. so, even in those hyper, you know, even in situations where there might be. um... Uh, uh, w- yeah, where, where where there might be evidence bases, the fact that it's from the 80s, or we've only done it two or three times, and and people are <laughs> finding out that a lot of these things aren't working yeah. anymore, and um, that's that's also sort of um, that's also sort of an issue there. But I think you're right. A pragmatic, um, yeah. sort of Bayesian best bet approach to things um, with regular review points and intellectual honesty is the best way. Um, is the best way to uh, to yeah. to approach it. Why is interdisciplinary thinking so powerful? And why should school leaders look elsewhere um, for lessons in leadership?
1: Yeah, I I think it's a really good idea um, to look kind of parallel to what you're doing. So within schools that could just be looking at different types of schools, special schools, primary if you're in a secondary and vice versa. So there's, there's, you know, quick wins within the sector. But I think it, it's really quite important to look beyond the sector as well. And um, I don't know what your background is, Joe, but I, I do meet quite a lot of school leaders. And I know some of my local area who have gone to the school as a pupil, gone to teacher training, maybe trained in the school, <laughs> come back, work their way up through the school, yeah. and are now the head of that school. And not only do they lack that kind of context of what else is going on within a kind of broader education sphere, but, you know, within the world of work as well. So I, I do think that there's there's a lot that could be learned and appreciated from moving around sectors. People talk a lot about teacher retention. Um, I think it, it's relatively healthy um, for teachers to try some different things and, and to learn more explicitly what what's unique and great about teaching and, and what could be picked up from other industries yes and, uh, and,
0: and my background is i'm actually a pretty mono mono um uh, uh i don't know the right even the right word here but i worked in a popular fast <laughs> food restaurant for a while then i did teacher training and then i've been a teacher since then <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that, that, that's basically it mm-hmm. and this project is about um well i'm initially interested in this project because it's about filling my own gaps in 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 knowledge of elsewhere mm-hmm. but also i think um that's probably pretty common for teachers i think um the, 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 there's some teachers who will move in and out a bit but the majority i bet you know 95 percent of teachers in our organization um have um been teachers for their whole career um, i bet I, be, I bet you it's that high i'm mm-hmm. interested to see the stats on it actually um
1: We'll, if we don't know, we'll just yes. get it on teacher tabs. Yeah, we'll really find out. We'll find
0: out the, the specifics of that. That would be great. <laughs> um, and the final question I've got is around developing um, developing other people. So, what is the approach you take to developing other people? And are there some people that you encounter who you think don't have what it takes?
1: Um, everyone has, it, has what it takes, but maybe not what it takes for the job yeah. that you've got them in. Or the organisation uh, that they're in. Um, so when I uh, start line managing anyone new, I will always have a, a conversation about what their expectations are of the role, but also of what their kind of. It, it's a bit cheesy, but you know, where do you expect to be in three years, five years time? What what is your bigger ambition? And I'm very happy to help people get there. Um, even if it's outside of the organization, even if it's outside of the sector for, for, of what they do. Um, so there was um, a young researcher that I was supporting uh, in a kind of mentoring relationship for a while, um, who um, I kind of uh, coached and supported through um, the traditional route of educational research, um, supported her in, in getting a, a lovely job um, at an organisation that inspects schools, Um, and uh, now she's a gardener. And and I think that that is absolutely fine. um, To be able to help someone to work within their passion, I think is probably the most supportive thing you can do as a manager.